0: Well, I'm privileged to be here this morning. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for leaving your vegetables at home. Um, I worked hard on this sermon a little bit, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, really glad to be here, really glad Ken gets away uh, and is able to have a break this morning. But if you would join with me in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, uh, don't stand yet. I'm going to talk a little bit more. Uh, you guys stand, right? Yeah? Okay. I'm going to look to you for answers down here, red shirt. Um But anyway, so I'm an assistant pastor here. Um, I've been here at Calvary since 2010, Um, and on Sundays you probably haven't seen me around because on Sundays I preach at another church. I pastor another church in Seven Bays, Washington, called Lake Roosevelt Bible Church. It's about an hour and a half away, so my wife and uh, my seven-year or seven-month-old son and I make the trek out there every Sunday morning. So, but today I'm privileged to be here. Um, If you would like to get to know me, I'm usually here during the week. Um, We have church prayer Monday through Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m., and I'm usually at that, uh, Lord willing. Um, So, anyways, this is a little bit about who I am, but turn with me to Joshua chapter 24, and we're going to be reading verses 14 and 15, and if you wouldn't mind standing with me, if you're able to do so and willing, we'll read this together. Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the river, Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me, in my household, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love for us. Uh, We thank you for uh, the gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus, and we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, Pray, God, that we would have listening ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning, Lord Jesus. Give us discerning hearts and minds. We pray all this, and we pray that you would be pleased as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, this morning we're talking about Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, and we're going to focus in on serving. But before I do that, I'm going to get into a little bit about what's going on here. What is going on in Joshua's life? Where is he, and why is he speaking to Israel in this way? Uh, Just to go go through history a little bit, uh, we remember that the Israelites had been in the Promised Land. Uh, Abraham's grandson Israel uh, had. 12 sons, uh, and they lived in the promised land of of Canaan, Um, but eventually they moved down to Egypt, and there became, over time, slaves. Um, And so they were slaves. Uh, God was kind enough and gracious enough when they called upon his name to to raise up Moses, to lead them out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of the land of oppression, um, and then through the wilderness uh, over 40 years, and eventually uh, onto the doorstep of the Promised Land, uh, which is when Moses passed the baton onto Joshua, Joshua, who had been his servant for many years. So Joshua was given the task of going into the Promised Land and capturing it, uh, conquering it uh, for the Lord's sake, and that is what he strived to accomplish uh, during his uh, years leading Israel. So Joshua did this. Um, Now, by the time uh, this is spoken by Joshua uh, in chapter 24. Uh, Joshua doesn't have much time left. He's an old man. Um, By my standards, he's very old. Uh, He's well over 100 years. He lived to be 110. Um, But he brought Israel together, and he was concerned for them. He was concerned for Israel because, uh, historically, uh, human nature shows that people fall away from service to God. They fall into disobedience. Um, And so he was worried for the people, so he wanted to bring them together, and he was pleading with them, begging them to to serve the Lord. And the people did. They they made a promise, they said, yes, we will serve the Lord. Joshua wasn't quite sure if they would do it. Uh, He said, no, you guys aren't able to serve the Lord. You're not able to serve the Lord. It's hard. It's hard to serve the Lord. And those of us who serve Jesus as king, we know it's hard, because Jesus says, in order to serve him, we must pick up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. We have to give up our life to Jesus in order to serve him. So Joshua knows this. Following and serving God is hard because God is a jealous God and he demands exclusive worship to him and to nothing else. But the people, anyways, uh, they wanted to serve the Lord. They wanted to serve the Lord, and they did. The people served the Lord during the time of Joshua and the elders. Um, But after that generation had passed away, the, the following generation did whatever they wanted. They forgot about the Lord. They disobeyed Him. They served the various gods of the people around them. They picked and chose which things they wanted to do for the Lord and which things they didn't want to do. Everybody did what seemed best in their own eyes uh, as the book of Judges follows. But then, after, after disobedience, they would experience as a nation the removal of God's blessing, the removal of His protection, and they would fall under the oppression of the surrounding nations whichever nation happened to be in control at that time. And that is until they would cry out to God for help, and he would send a judge, a savior sort of figure, to release them from oppression, to save them. And then they would turn to the Lord, and they would experience peace as they served and obeyed God during the life of the judge. But it never seemed to stick. It never seemed to stick. Because every time the judge passed away, the guy like Joshua and his elders... Every time the judge passed away, it was a quick generation until they were right back into the cesspool of disobedience. So we have this frustrating dilemma, this jerry-rigged sort of salvation for the people of Israel. They're saved for a little bit, then they fall away. They're saved, and they fall away. They cry out to God, He saves them, and then they fall away. It's frustrating. And Joshua foresaw this, right? He told the Israelites they wouldn't be able to follow through uh, when looking back over the seemingly endless, unending cycle of salvation, it gets me, mo- gets me wondering, you know, when would God do a total makeover of the salvation process for Israel? It, it was always like a temporary patch or a jerry-rigging salvation for those people. When when was God going to do something that would last? You know, just tear it down, the salvation process, and start from the foundation and build with materials that would outlast this age, materials that would go beyond Into eternity. And he did this. He did this. He did this through Jesus, Jesus Christ, who was a carpenter, a builder, right, from Galilee, uh, who was approved by God because he was the Son of God. And, And he willingly sacrificed himself on our behalf, and his following resurrection to life brought us the following wonderful things a Savior who lives forever, a Savior who takes away the consequence of our disobedience a Savior who delivers us from oppression, and a Savior who gives us a lasting desire and ability to serve the Lord. So I'll go through these things in a little bit more depth here, but I want to focus eventually on service, service to God. As as I said earlier, every time a judge passed away, every time a Savior passed away for Israel, Israel fell back into disobedience. But Jesus is the Savior, the judge, who ever lives he is the resurrection and the life. He is still alive today at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives that we may be obedient to him forever as a people. I am the resurrection and the life. Right now, Jesus is alive. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's speaking with him on our behalf. And of his reign, there will be no end. Jesus is the Savior who lives forever. And he also takes away the consequences of our sin. Every time Israel fell back into disobedience, they would experience the wrath of God in the form of death through famine, sword, and plague. But Jesus has removed from us the deadly consequence of disobedience to God. He's gathered up all of our sin collectively and all of mine, past, present, and future, and he nailed it to the cross in his own body, willingly taking the fall for us so that we wouldn't have to. He's the judge who took the final beating for us, and now we are free from the consequence of sin once and for all because of Jesus. And he has delivered us from oppression. Every time Israel experienced the wrath of God, that wrath of, that through death, famine, sword, and plague was coupled with the presence of foreign oppressive forces. But Jesus is the Savior, the judge, who takes away death, but also takes away the stronghold of Satan, the enemy, the adversary, the oppressor. On our lives. Jesus has tied up Satan. Jesus is the strong man. He's tied up Satan in his power. He's tossed him out of our house, and he's given us the presence of the Spirit of God as a seal of his promise until the last day. Jesus delivers us from oppression. And, and if you remember, when Israel was given a judge, they were led into uh, temporary obedience to God by the example of the judge. But Jesus is the Savior, the judge, who set for us a perfect and lasting example of service through a teaching that is good and practical to follow every day. Uh, and though his commands were more rigorous than the law because it, it actually went to our hearts, not just external um, doings, but Jesus's law goes into our hearts, the commands of Christ can be obeyed because he's given us the same power through which he accomplished obedience to God, that is his Holy Spirit. So Jesus leads us into obedience. So I've touched briefly on on what Jesus has done that Joshua or the judges couldn't do, but what I want to focus on today is that idea of service and obedience. I mean, as humans, uh, Philippians chapter 2 makes it obvious that as humans, were made in the form of a servant. Humans are servants. Um, As a pastor, I'm part of what people call the ministry, which means service. Ministry means service, so I'm part of service to God. But everybody's part of service in one way. Some of you are public servants for the government. Some of you serve your coworkers or your employer. Some of you feel as if you were made to serve your kids, and it's an unending thing, right? Your kids are adults, and you're still taking care of them, right? Uh, Soon we realize that as humans, we're all serving something. Our employers, customers, family, friends, our hobbies. More often than not, we find that we, we love and cherish to serve ourselves and something that protects our own interests. This is true today, and this was true in the days of Joshua as well. Joshua, coming to the end of his life, had something he needed to say. He needed to get off his chest one of the last things he said, paramount in importance and the culmination of his life and work. Joshua lays before the people of Israel a choice. Serve God or serve somebody else. There's no both and here. It's exclusive. It's an ultimatum. It's a line drawn in the sand. Choose today who you are going to serve, Israel. Choose today who you are going to serve, Now, service to God is really quite simple, though it's intensely demanding. It requires, first and foremost, the laying down of our pride, thinking that we can do everything ourselves. And it's the giving over uh, of our heart and our body in a binding, eternal relationship to God, similar to marriage in that way. You give over both your heart and your life and your body to this person we call God. And that's what service is. And as you progress in service to God, you begin to learn through the Word of God and through the Spirit of God what exactly God enjoys, the way He likes to be served, and the way uh, that He doesn't like to be served, the things that He disdains. Just like in a relationship, you start figuring out which things my, life, my wife likes, which things my wife doesn't like, which things I think are compliments, which things are actually compliments, right? Um, in the same way, God has things that He enjoys and things that He does not enjoy and we find this out in time. But what exactly, um, what exactly are the benefits of serving God? What are the benefits of serving God? And the, I just want to go back a, a step here and say that we can serve God in, in a variety of ways. There are many ways to serve God because God has given each of us gifts and abilities to serve each other, to serve the church some he's given the gift of prophecy, some he's given the gift of teaching, he's given some to be pastors, he's given some to be servants, he's given some to be administrators. Different people have different gifts, and that's okay. It's okay that I'm not the worship guy. It's okay that I'm not the sound guy over there. Everybody look at the sound guy. Thank you for embarrassing him for me. Um, it's okay that I don't do that. It's uh, the economy of God, the specialization of his gifts that he gives uh, as he wants. Uh, and so he's given me the ability to serve. And um, there are many ways to serve in the church. Uh, James talked briefly about that. But, um, but beyond that, what are the benefits of serving God? Or what are the benefits of giving your life wholeheartedly to God? when we lay out some of the facts, the choice seems a bit easy. I mean, if you choose to serve God, if you choose to know Jesus Christ, you gain uh, forgiveness of sin, you gain peace with God, you gain purification of your character, you, you gain the continual presence of God's kindness, you gain entrance into the paradise of God you, in, in the promise of a future resurrection body that's not subject to decay, like I have sort of a cold this morning, my resurrection body is not going to have that. It's imperishable, immortal, uncorruptible. That's one of the hopes that we have through Jesus. So that's what we have when we choose him. And by not choosing Jesus, you incur anxiety in your soul, uncertainty of your future, unforgiveness of sin, separation from God and his people, and eternal torment in hell. I mean, most of us, when laid out those facts or those realities, um, you say, man, that's a tough one, Drew. But my final answer is I'm going to serve God. That's a good answer. Um, But what's troubling is that though many people have heard the simple claims of Christianity and know the right answer, that they ought to say, God, I'll serve you, it seems as if there is a lack of follow-through in the church. I mean, in the bride of Christ. Hear this parable from Jesus himself. What do you think, Matthew 21, 28 through 32? What do you think? There is a man who had two sons, he went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then later the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Uh, which of the two did what his father wanted? The first one, right? This is, he, Jesus was telling this uh, story, this parable to the Pharisees. The first they answered, and Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors, the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe. So just because we say, yeah, I want to serve God. I like, the, I like the benefits of serving God and, and then the uh, things that I avoid by serving God. Uh, and you you raise your hand and say, yeah, I wanna be a Christian. Um, If in your heart you're not actually desiring him and want to follow him if you're not born again, then it's just lip service, it's just lip service. It's just saying what you think somebody else wants to hear, it's just saying what maybe you think you want to hear, but you're not following through. I I went to school uh, in Michigan, I went to college in Michigan, Calvin College, and I went for engineering, but I'm not an engineer, obviously, I'm a pastor now. Um, so that's a lot of student loan debt for something that I didn't need to go do. Um, uh, buyer beware. Um, but anyways, one of the things we did when I was a senior, I went to uh, Mexico for a senior design project. Uh, my senior design project was to work on uh, a water treatment system and holding tank for a school in the rural mountains of Mexico for a native Indian tribe called the Tarahamarans and I don't remember where the village was. It wasn't even on Google Maps. So, um, but anyways, that was the only mission-type trip I've ever been on um, to a foreign country. And so uh, we, we go to Mexico. It wasn't much of a trip. It was uh, travel for about 16 hours, and then we were in the village and traveling around, taking water samples and then testing them, and then uh, we left right away after we got all the samples. So wasn't much of a mission trip. It was more of a work project. Uh, but when we were there, we had trouble with the natives. We actually had trouble because we had a, a translator from Tara to Spanish and then another translator from Spanish to English. So that was interesting. Uh, but we had trouble because they, we would ask, is this spring good or is this spring, uh, does it flow year round? Because we went in the wintertime uh, and there was much water. Um, and they would say, oh, yeah, yeah yeah, this is good, this is good. But they were just saying that because that's what they thought we wanted to hear. Um, it wasn't actually true. Uh, and so then the guy who ran the school said, no, that that spring is dry. That's a seasonal spring, so we don't, we wouldn't want that for our water supply. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, what was interesting, that what I experienced in the mountains of Mexico, I think God experiences in a more regular and tragic sense. People say that, you know. People say what God wants to hear, but few actually lay down their lives, their own desires, and obey him. I mean, why? Why? Why do people not follow through? I mean, especially if Jesus, if, if when we put our trust, our hope in Jesus, he gives us the desire to obey, and so many people claim to be Christians, why is there just like rampant disobedience? Why, when you read the Bible, the word of God, and what it lays out for what a Christian should be, and then you look at people who claim to be Christians or the church sometimes, why is there a discrepancy there? Why is, When you look at the church, why is there division and disunity? Why is there slander? Why is there gossip? Why is there bitterness? Why is there unforgiveness? Why is there a lack of love? Well, we can look at this for a second here. First, I want to dispel the illusion that Christians are perfect. Maybe some people in this world say Christians are hypocrites because You know, they say one thing and they do another, Uh, but Christians, we're not perfect. We aren't perfect. We've been, our spirit has been born again, and we're striving to be like Jesus. We rely on the perfection of Jesus to cleanse us of sin and the spirit of God living in us, to change our character over time, to become more mature. But as John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us. From all unrighteousness. So, just there, Christians aren't perfect. That's a cultural illusion. Christians aren't perfect. They're they're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect until we see Jesus face to face. But why do Christians sin? I can think of four reasons to account for the disobedience of Christians in the church. I can think of four things. So I'm going to go through these and I'll I'll number them for us. Uh, number one, fraud. There are people in the church who actually do not belong to Jesus. There are people who say, I'm a Christian. They raise their hands. They claim to be, to be like Christ. They claim to be born again, but they're not. Matthew 15:8 says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, we, didn't, we prophesied in your name, and in your name we drove out demons, in your name we did miracles. Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So there, there are fake Christians amongst us uh, in this world. I hope not in this church, but I don't know. So that's something that the Lord knows. Um, and you think... If there's fake Christians, if there are people who claim to be like Christ, but their hearts are far from Him, they just are giving lip service, but they're not actually followers of Jesus, then why doesn't Jesus just kick them out of the church, right? He's God. He's powerful enough. He can kick them out of the church. Like, no problem. No problem, right? Jesus could do that. He, sh- he-, he could do that. Um, but if you read the parable of the weeds in Matthew chapter 13, uh, he tells us uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who went out and sowed seed um, during the day, but at night an enemy went out and he sowed weeds among the field. And, and in time, when those, you know, when everything started growing, it became apparent that there was both wheat and weeds together growing together at the same time. And the angels come to the father. And they say, uh, do you want us to go take the weeds out? So this is like non-Christians or fake Christians in the church. Do you want us to go take the weeds out? And uh, God says, no, leave them until the end. Leave them until the end. Because if we, if we start ripping everything out, then we're going to rip out some Christians too. So we'll leave everything in until the end, till the harvest, and then we'll separate everything at the end time. So Jesus says it's going to be better for those of us who are Christians who follow him uh, that he does not remove uh, the fake Christians, the frauds from among us. So I'm not suggesting some sort of like fake Christian witch hunt or anything like that. So don't worry, we're not going to like have like a polygraph test or something for you guys. Are you really born again? Get out of here, you know. Um, Rather, we are to, in general, we're supposed to treat people with charity and respect within the church and encourage each other to know Jesus and walk in obedience to him. So, So, we're talking about what the four reasons. I have four reasons for disobedience. One of them is because some people just aren't Christians. Some people just aren't Christians. The other one, number two, the ignorant Christian. Um, Is anybody, show of hands, does anybody have kids? Okay. I have a seven month old boy. Uh, He's very cute, by the way. He's just started crawling around. Uh, He's able to say a few words. Unfortunately, his first word was mama, so I don't hold that against my wife or my son, but. It's a little sad. Uh, We're working on data next. But he is, is, believe it or not, pretty ignorant, right? He's seven months old. He doesn't get things. He puts things in his mouth that shouldn't be put in his mouth, right? It's not food. It's not food. What are you doing? You're embarrassing me, okay? Don't put that in your mouth. No, he's not really. Um, He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't know how to use the toilet. Uh, He can't use full sentences. He refuses to get a job. I've asked him, several times. Uh, And he's still living at home, right? At seven months, I I expected a little bit more. But uh, now, if these were my real expectations, you might be embarrassed for me on my behalf. But we all know that he's just a baby, and it takes a long time uh, to learn everything he needs to know in this new life. Um, And it's the same for a Christian. It's the same for a Christian. Uh, Christians start out being what Jesus calls born again. Their spirits are born again. You don't start out being a completely mature, fully developed Christian upon accepting Jesus Christ. Yes, he might deliver you from certain sins, from certain addictions, um, but it's going to take time. We go one day, being regular people, to suddenly, abruptly, being filled with the Spirit of God, eyes open, truly new. We see the world different. So with being born again comes the process of growing into a mature and fruitful follower of Christ. You start out as a baby, and you don't know exactly what it means, but slowly and surely, you learn the ropes of being a Christian. My point is this. um, You don't know how to follow Jesus until you're taught. You don't know how to follow him until you're taught. You won't know the importance of forgiveness. You won't know the importance of prayer, kindness, love, patience, sacrifice, gentleness, holiness, until you're convinced through either the word of God or the spirit of God and amongst his people. It's not like uh, when you become a Christian, you get like a Matrix download. Anybody ever see the movie The Matrix? Yeah, he's like, he gets a download and he's like, I know Kung Fu, right? It's not like you become born again, you're like, I know Christian, right? It doesn't work that way. Uh, so there's a learning curve to following Christ, and none of us have really arrived at that curve. None of us have plateaued and say, well, I'm done now. I am perfect Christian. Uh, I'll walk that way the rest of my life. No, nobody, nobody does that. Um, even seasoned Christians forget or have yet to learn some of the commands of Jesus in their fullness. So we ought to be gracious and patient with the shortcomings of others. So why is there disobedience in the church? One, right, there's fake Christians. Two, there's ignorant Christians. There's Christians who don't know. They really don't know, so we ought to be gracious to them, right? Three, the defiant Christian. That's probably the saddest and the most miserable of people uh, in the church. It's is maybe even the most miserable person in the world because they can't divulge in the world and they can't toss God aside. They can't enjoy the peace of God uh, because they are walking in disobedience with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's a tragedy. Upon accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're given the permanent presence of the Spirit of God to live and dwell in your being, in your soul. So to be living in willful sin against God with God, also in your heart, uh, is a deep, constant frustration, uh, and it causes people to be miserable in, in the church. Um, if you want an example of what this would, if, if, as I'm thinking about what this could be like, do uh, you guys remember Abraham? You know, Father Abraham had many sons, yada, 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 yada. yada. Um, so Abraham, he had a polygamous relationship, right? He had his wife, Sarah, and then uh, his mistress, Hagar, in the same household. Now, was there a lot of peace in that household? <laughs> no, there was not peace in the household. The Bible records it. it. was bad call, Abraham, right? Don't follow that example, okay? Bad call. Um, so we have Sarah, his wife, Hagar, his mistress, living together in the same household. It seemed like they're always at each other's thro- throats. Abraham is trying to live to please both of them, but it doesn't work because... What both Sarah and Hagar want is Abraham's undivided devotion, and he's unable to deliver with both of them in the same household, right? So I would say Abraham living with these two conflicting things is like a Christian living in willful sin with the Spirit of God. You're going to be tearing apart at the seams, unable to enjoy the world, and unable to enjoy God because both parties demand undivided devotion and they are mutually exclusive. James 4, four says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So this person is really a miserable person. So, uh, disobedience. We have the, the fraud, we have the ignorant Christian, we have the defiant Christian. And the fourth um, is what I hope we would be as a church is the repentant Christian, the repentant Christian. Now, the goal isn't that we, shalt, that, that, that we should try to fall short or disobey, I mean, we, we shouldn't say, you know, it's too hard to obey all of Jesus's commands, so I'll just pick some that I like, or I'll set the bar down here somewhere that I can actually jump over. I mean, we shoot for obedience because Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. But we know that we're gonna, we're gonna fall short because we're still in these physical bodies if you remember, Paul said these these physical bodies were sown in corruption. There's things uh, that we inherited from Adam that are sinful in us, are bent towards sin. And we've inherited this, and so these bodies are subject to sin. And so even though we're born again in our spirit, we struggle against our bodies which crave sin, which crave disobedience to God. So that's a constant struggle. Paul says, the things I want to do in my spirit, I don't do because his flesh is fighting against the spirit all the time. So there's a struggle we have here. But when we're born again, we eagerly await the resurrection. Uh, our hope is in the future, in new heaven, new earth, where Jesus gives us sinless physical bodies that are sown not in corruption, but are sown in the spirit, imperishable, incorruptible, and no longer subject to sin and its struggles. But until that day, we struggle in these, ba- these bodies and we fall short daily. Each of us do. Uh, I do. Staff workers here do. The pastors do. The elders do. Uh, in the, even the little children, even the little children do. They struggle with it, right? Uh, 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The repentant Christian makes mistakes, but asks God and others for forgiveness, becomes more like Christ in their character daily as they observe the commands of Jesus, serve the people of God. So, uh, so we looked at the four reasons for disobedience that i that I've come to. Fraud, ignorance, defiance, and repentance. So we looked at these things, Um, we talked briefly about what service to God looks like using your gifts, your abilities, your physical resources, but also those things that are like emotional um, and whatever influence you have for the kingdom of God in service to Him. But we're left, I got a few applications for us. Application number one, this uh, this is for Christians, right? We ought to be a gracious people bent on restoring people to Jesus. I mean, think of, think of the four reasons for disobedience. Um, if you are like I, when, when people fall short in sin, naturally we get upset with them, right? Even if it's me, I get upset at myself when I fall short in sin. If it's my wife, I get upset with her when she sins. Um, when other people sin against me, uh, when I'm at the DMV, then uh, I'm angry with them, right? Right. Um, But we ought to be a gracious people, bent on restoring people to Jesus. I mean, think of the four things in the church. Uh, The fakers, those people who are frauds, their ultimate destination is hell because they don't know Jesus, because they don't know Jesus, so they're not going to be with Jesus forever. So we ought to uh, help them. We ought to have a pity in our heart and a sorrow in our heart for them, extending the kindness of Jesus in an attempt to win them to know Jesus. We ought to be gracious to them. Think of their eternal end. Think of that. What about those who are ignorant? Well, people who are ignorant, who are sitting in ignorance, they don't know any better. They really don't, right? That's what ignorance means. They actually don't know any better. My son doesn't know any better, right? My son doesn't know any better. Uh, So we ought to be patient and teach them with gentleness and respect the way of righteousness because they don't know any better the defiant person. Uh, sometimes it's harder to tell the difference between a defiant person and a faker, right? Um, but we know that these defiant people are miserable, right? We know they're miserable because they're living and grieving the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is inside of them all the time, and He is grieved. There's, there's drama in His heart. There's uh, a lack of um, harmony with God, and that's, and that's living in them all the time, as a Christian, it's miserable. I mean, for these uh, defiant Christians, we ought to encourage them and eagerly desire them to be restored to God. We ought to be praying for them uh, and and showing Him the way way of righteousness by example and being gentle and respectful to them uh, when they fall short. And then we have the repentant Christian. Uh, What ought we to do with the repentant Christian? I mean, this could be anybody in the church. This could be anybody. This is me, right? This is everybody. Any and every Christian falls into sin, so we ought to be understanding and bear with the shortcomings of other. It could be me. It could be you. Um, And if I'm proud and overbearing on somebody, um, if I say, I can't believe they did that, and I shrug my shoulder, um, give them a cold shoulder, uh, turn my face away from them, uh, then it's usually just a. in God's irony, I do the same thing shortly after, right? We shouldn't be proud or overbearing. Um, we ought to be uh, understanding and bear with the shortcomings of other, others. So that's um, some applications uh, for us. Uh, another application is that Christian, we ought to serve. We, we ought to serve. We ought to serve God in one way or another, whether in this body, in your family, in the community, the place where God has placed you, how can we serve God? We have to know what he desires of us. We have to know what he demands of us. We have to know what things he enjoys and what things he disdains so that we, we would know what service looks like to him. We're living to please God. We're, we're living to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So we need to take time and see God's face. God, am I doing the things you're wanting me to do? Which way? What ways do you want me to serve you, Lord? Um, number three, this is for non-Christians. Um, you also have a choice before you today, non-Christians, those who do not belong to Jesus. Whether you will serve Jesus or whether you will serve whatever else this world has to offer, you have a choice before. There's a, there's a line in the sand. There's an ultimatum. You have the choice. But we have to choose carefully because in order to serve Jesus, requires more than just lip service, more than just saying, yeah, I wanna do it, and then no follow through, right? In order to serve Jesus, it requires exclusive access to your heart, to your soul, to your strength, to your mind, much like a marriage, right? But when we do that, there's a promise of peace in our hearts, there's a promise of eternal security, and all the benefits of belonging to the household of God having that Savior who is with us, who lives forever, takes away the consequence of our sin, takes away oppression from the enemy and gives us the ability and the desire to serve and please Him. So choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your love to us this morning. Uh, We praise you and we worship you. Uh, you are good, and you are gracious, and your love endures forever. I pray, Lord, that we might desire to be obedient to you, that you might fill us with your Holy Spirit. If we are in any way disobedient to you, Lord, or in in living in defiance against you, God, I pray that we might repent, pray that we might come to you uh, in sorrow and brokenness, and uh, seek restoration with you, that we might find peace, Lord. I pray that this morning, God, So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to lavish your love upon this church, um, that we would serve and follow you all of our days. Uh, That is our desire, Jesus. We're not living in this world to please men. We're living to please you, God. So we love you, we thank you, we glorify you, we worship you, and we praise you uh, because you are worthy. We thank you, Jesus, for your kindness. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection, God, where one day we'll be without this struggle with sin will be perfect, made like you in your image. Uh, and so we thank you, God, for that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll be taking communion together today. Um, so this is an act of obedience. Uh, the, the Word of God says, uh, every time you partake of communion, the, the bread, which represents the body of Jesus, and, and, the, and the grape juice, which represents his blood, right? you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Um, so we proclaim his death. We, we, by his blood, we know that his body's broken for us. He's taken away the consequence of death for sin. And by his blood, he's forgiven us. He's wiped us clean. And he's made us right with God. So this is a celebration uh, and a time of joy. So there will be people to, will, willing to pray with you on the sides. I'll be down here to pray with you if you need prayer. But let us enjoy together uh, and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.